If you look up prodigality in the dictionary, you find the words wasteful, excessive, overspending. I think the common use of that word is a distortion that reveals humanity's tendency towards anthropomorphism. We like to make anything like us. Whether it's a cloud in the sky or the smiling man on the moon, we'll take any object and turn it into something about me. And an easy way to tell whether or not a parable has been misinterpreted, something I learned early on in seminary, is whether or not the interpretation centers on who you feel most connected to in the story or does the interpretation center on a revolutionary characteristic revealed and shocking to the audience about who God is? So in light of that, what does it mean to be prodigal? How do we practice Luke's version of prodigality? And why would that have been shocking to the hearers of this story? Let's ask Luke. Notice how the story was framed. Tax collectors and sinners are coming to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this guy is eating with sinners. Eating with them. That's the rub. Jesus and his dirty, rumbly crowd is upsetting all the cultural motifs. In the previous chapter, Jesus is invited to dinner at one of the lead Pharisees' homes. And he notices that some of the people keep trying to push their way to the better seat. Now, this isn't about which seat cushion is more comfortable. In the ancient Near East, where you sat was based on your power and your influence and your social standing, how much you gave to the synagogue, whether or not people trusted you. Jesus had already been known for eating with people of all kinds of social statuses and letting them sit wherever they felt like. Jesus will have none of this preempting and upping of one another. And so he tells two stories, one of which you've probably heard about the first being last and the last being first. That is, if you come to dinner and you try to give yourself the best seat, you're going to be really embarrassed when the master comes along and tells you to go to a less important seat. So why not better to sit at one of the bottom rungs and be raised up in the midst of everyone? That's the first story. And the second story in chapter 14 is the great banquet. Right? All those who think they're going to get to come to the party are left out. While the prostitutes and the homeless, and the working poor, and the unemployed, all they are the invitees to the great party. That revolutionary Jesus keeps talking about food and eating with these sinners, and Luke wants to drive that point home so much that four times in this gospel Jesus is criticized for eating with sinners. Jesus keeps hanging out with the wrong crowd and he eats with them. Now nothing like that happens in our world today, does it? 
no one ever gets criticized for spending time with the wrong people at table. No one gets criticized for meeting with Iran's elected officials or for meeting in a back room with someone from that other political party and trying to write a bill. And we certainly wouldn't criticize the Pope for meeting with someone that we wouldn't think he would agree with, right? Do you remember how recently he visited? Our town was shut down, and yet the country on the whole celebrated him? Until a few days after he left, and we found out that he met with that notorious Kentucky County Clerk, Kim Davis. Remember the one who wouldn't issue marriage licenses to gays and lesbians in her county? who was jailed for a few days? Well, when folks found out that the Pope had met with her, the pushback was dynamic. LGBT advocacy groups, of course, said, you need to clearly state your position here, Pope Francis. Others thought that it was going to ruin the Catholic Church's standing in our country. And while his favorability ratings really didn't take a hit, we don't really know what was said. Kim Davis said that the Pope said, stay strong. But we don't know whether the Pope endorsed her position or anything else. But all these questions came out. Was it right for him to sit down with a bigot, a purveyor of hate crimes? Was it right to sit down with someone who clearly wasn't fulfilling her constitutional responsibilities? There were good questions. Questions that were asked once again the week later when we found out who the Pope had hosted at the embassy when he was here visiting. He had met with a friend of his, a gay man named Yayu Grassi, and his partner, Iwan, and several friends that they brought along. According to Mr. Grassi, quote, three weeks before the trip, the Pope called me on the phone and said he would love to give me a hug. Grassi has been friends with the Pope for over 19 years since the former cardinal taught him in high school. And this, of course, promptly led everyone to drop their jaws and try to figure out what on earth is this guy doing? The Pope kept eating at table with the wrong crowd. So perhaps then, in light of the Pope's actions, in light of what Jesus offers us in these stories. Maybe prodigality is about sitting down with people that you don't like and listening to them. I think that's nice. It makes for a good little lesson. But there's something deeper here, more revolutionary. Something that would have to really tick off those Pharisees in order to make them want to kill him. Remember what happens in the story of the prodigal. The son returns, and the town expects justice. This boy had sinned against his father, he had sinned against his brother, and he had sinned against God, because in the Torah it tells you that you cannot go and do all these things. Retribution was expected. As Daniel Deffenbaugh points out, the ways of the world suggest that, yes, the son might be welcomed home, but reasonably so, on a ration of bread and water in answer to his deplorable sin. But the economy of God is such that rejoicing for the return of a child is simply not enough. 
Joy must be made all the more complete by abundance. The best robe, the finest ring, and the fatted calf. Remember, the brother doesn't pout over the other brother being there. He pouts because he's not been the recipient of even a little goat. And I think the brother's chagrin is at the crux of why the story matters for you and me. Remember that I said parables rightly interpreted are not about us, although we tend to twist and make it so. The top of the story comes when the brother tries to make this all about him. And the father responds to him in a way that they would not have expected. He says, you've forgotten my nature, son. You don't seem to get why I'm doing this, do you? All that is mine is yours. This is not your younger brother's party so much as it is my party. The party I throw for many. I am on the lookout for all of my loved ones. But see what I did with this feast. I reconciled your brother to this family. I reconciled this village to one another and to our God. And in so doing, I have written a new story about your brother. In this story, he's defined not by what he's done, but by what I've done for him. With my meal, I've written him a new narrative. And that, my friends, is the good news of the gospel for us today. Jesus re-narrates us with food. It's kind of anticlimactic in its simplicity, but it's profound in its implications. Remember, the Pharisees weren't mad because Jesus ate with the poor. It's because he kept writing them a new story in the midst of a societal story that said that these people were less than by order of their birth or their behavior or by their income level. Jesus kept saying that they were equal and that those in power were going to have to take a back seat. And as you know, those in power don't like to give it up. In the story that Jesus is writing, the poor equal to the rich or even possibly favored by God, as Mary tells us in the Magnificat. In this story, the unclean are loved by God no matter how much of the inheritance they've squalored, no matter how few times they call back their parents, no matter what kind of sin they did in college, or how bad their grades, how poorly they did at work. In this story, Jesus defines the prodigal father. I spent a large part of this week trying to figure out how Jesus does this re-narration, how it all works. And in studying the neuroscience and psychology of storytelling, I've discovered that when our brains hear a story, a lot of things happen. Including, if we identify with the protagonist, which we almost always do, oxytocin is released. And oxytocin helps us build trust and empathy. 
And in doing so, we find ourselves trying to emulate the behaviors of the protagonist. In weeks following a story, researchers have found that folks will do the behaviors of the protagonist, they'll share some of their feelings, and they'll even say some of their colloquialisms, some of their phrases, while thinking it came from themselves, until someone calls them out and says, oh yeah, but that's what the main character in the story said. Jesus knows the power of storytelling and of our association with the protagonist. And you do too. Is there anybody here who's ever been to a James Bond movie? Does anyone remember how they feel when they left the theater? I'm going to take on the world. I'm certainly going to get us a better security system at home. But I've got this. Has anybody who's ever been to a romance film and walked out feeling like they are ready to rekindle their passionate love with somebody? Those feelings are proof that you were witness to a story well told. And it's really good news for us in the Presbyterian Church because our Reformed tradition's distinct contribution is highlighted in this story. That is, the unrelentless recentering of the faith on the story of the prodigal father. The story of what God does for us, and not about what we do for God. God's love is not grace if it needs to be earned. And our response isn't gratitude if it's required in order to ensure that the love keeps flowing to us. So Jesus shares in body and blood in a new way based on a new protagonist. I don't know about you, but those Christians in my life who have been the most influential are those who know who the real protagonist of their story is. It's not people who have the greatest systematic theology who could tell me in detail Bible chapter and verse where everything is at but who's the protagonist of their story the creator of the universe the savior that loves them these saints that have most influenced me recognize that re-narration is part of a life of faith they come back to church on Sunday morning to be surrounded by this community of faith that re-narrates them into a story of abundance and love in contrast to the story of scarcity you hear outside. These people come to the table where at once food and story are intertwined. Jesus re-narrates us in body and blood with claims so absurd that without the rest of you in this room, I wouldn't believe it. Claims like, in life and in death, we belong to God. Claims like, death has lost its sting. Claims like, I have nothing to fear because the prodigal father will always, always welcome me back to his arms, no matter what I do. I share with you one more story 
a man named Shane Windmeyer. He's the director of Campus Pride. Campus Pride worked for 10 years to boycott Chick-fil-A because Shane had found out the history of Chick-fil-A's corporate giving to organizations like the Family Research Council and other nonprofits that were working hard to reduce the rights of gays and lesbians in our country. So you can imagine Shane's shock when he tells us in the Huffington Post that I spent New Year's Eve at the red-blooded, all-American epicenter of college football, the Chick-fil-A Bowl, next to Dan Cathy, the CEO, as his personal guest. He goes on in the story, in the story to share that Dan had reached out to him and wanted to understand Shane's background, where he was coming from. And so began a year-long relationship of texting and phone calls and visits. Dan Cathy was ashamed of the way that his brand was being used against gays and lesbians. He heard stories from Shane like college frat boys who would put a table next to a Chick-fil-A table at a college fair, and as outed gay students would come by, they would yell, I love Chick-fil-A. Dan was ashamed. And they kept meeting, and they kept meeting, and Dan finds, Shane finds himself at the Chick-fil-A bowl with Dan Cathy. And Dan hands him a form. It's a tax form. And it shows him that Chick-fil-A had, by that point, for a year, stopped giving to some of the most vitriolic of these anti-LGBT organizations. The article is called, Dan and Me, My Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Cathy in Chick-fil-A. And it ends like this. In the end, it's not about eating or eating a certain chicken sandwich. It's about sitting down at a table together and sharing our views as human beings, engaged in real, respectful, civil dialogue. Dan would probably call this act the biblical definition of hospitality. I would call it human decency. But so long as we are all at the same table and talking, does it matter what we call it or what we eat? My friends, our story begins with the Pharisees criticizing Jesus for eating with sinners. And it ends with an invite for the older brother to come to the table. An extravagant feast designed to restore right relationship between the father and the sons and the neighborhood. And so the parable ends with this implicit question. Will the Pharisees and the scribes join Jesus in welcoming and eating with sinners? Will we? Amen.